You're listening to Democracy's Future, the Fordham Law podcast about the big crises and questions about democracy around the world. I'm Zephyr Teachout. And I'm Julie Sook. We're both professors at Fordham Law School. And this season, we're exploring the crises that are making the future of democracy uncertain at home and abroad. We are starting with American democracy, and we're asking, is American democracy dead? We're thrilled to be joined by an excellent guest for this topic, Stephen Levitsky. Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt are the co-authors of Tyranny of the Minority, which was just published, as well as their global bestseller and multiple prize winner from 2017, How Democracies Die. Both are professors of government at Harvard, and both have done extensive research on comparative politics, institutions, and history, with Steve Levitsky's prior work focusing on Latin American democracies and Daniel Ziblatt's work focusing on European political systems and their historical development. We're so happy that you could join us today, Steve. Thank you and welcome. Thanks to both of you for having me. So I want to start with uh, just assessing the state of democracy in America today. Uh, From Democracies Die uh, a few years ago, right when Donald Trump was elected, uh, to Tyranny of the Minority, uh, it seems like you drew on your extensive knowledge of the rise of autocrats worldwide, and particularly in Latin America, uh, to understand America as not particularly exceptional, but backsliding into democracy, uh, a backslide that could happen uh, given what you were seeing. Uh, And we all know that Donald Trump was defeated in 2020, uh, but then we had January 6th and a whole range of other institutional and social dynamics, uh, which you call tyranny of the minority, uh, that perhaps continue to threaten American democracy. And do you think that the pattern that you've seen since then is a road to the death of democracy in the United States? Well, the danger is still with us. Um, I think the first thing to say is that the United States has, in fact, experienced democratic backsliding. All global indices of democracy show a decline in the in the U.S. score for level of democracy since 2016, uh, just to take one, Freedom House a decade ago gave the United States a score of 94 out of 100 in its global freedom index. That was more or less on par with Great Britain and Japan and Canada and Germany. It breaks down its scoring. So it has a, a reasonable measure of things like human rights and press freedom and the integrity of elections, civil rights, sort of standard modern definition of liberal democracy broken into different components and subjective evaluations by their by their people of how countries score. Um, these, these are not perfect measures um, and they, they get debated, but they uh, they give you a, a, a broad sense, particularly as individual organizations change over time. So you may like or dislike elements of, of Freedom House's evaluation, but a Freedom House, for whatever it's worth, scored the United States in in the low 90s a decade ago, and now scores at 83, which is tied with Romania and below Mongolia and two points below Argentina. Now, that may seem shocking to some uh, listeners or some Americans, but when you have violent threats against election workers, violent threats against uh, elected officials, against prosecutors, when you get systematic efforts to restrict access to the ballot, And of course, a president actively trying to overturn the results of elections, you fall to a point where Freedom House considers you less democratic than Argentina. Now, it's incredibly important that Donald Trump was defeated and removed from office in 2020. I think by by most standards, U.S. democracy survived the 2020-21 crisis, but it is a less democratic regime than it was a decade ago. And at least according to Daniel and my analysis, all of the factors that threw us into crisis uh, during the Trump period persist today. Uh, The institutional factors, which we can talk about, um, but also maybe most importantly, the radicalization of the Republican Party, the transformation of the Republican Party into a predominantly anti-democratic force. 
And do you see that transformation as having taken place just over the past decade or so? Or um, are, are you looking back historically even further? So the book traces the origins to the civil rights era, um, which is not to say the Republic. So we differ from, from some of our friends mm-hmm. and colleagues who say, you know, this DNA has always been with the Republicans. He's always been an authoritarian party going back to Goldwater, Reagan, G.W. Bush. We disagree. Uh, we, tra- we spent a chapter tracing the origins of the Republican transformation to the 50s and 60s, to the, to the civil rights era and the decision of Republican leaders as a minority party in the 1960s, their decision to actively pursue the votes of racially conservative whites, particularly in the South, who were uncomfortable with civil rights. When the Democratic Party, which, as you guys know, the the, uh, the Southern whites were overwhelmingly Democrats through the 60s and 70s, when the Democratic Party very gradually became the party most associated with civil rights, the Republicans saw an opportunity to go after those. And they did it. They did it systematically, starting with Goldwater, through Nixon, through Reagan, who added evangelicals, and became the party of essentially white Christian America. Um, the behavior of the Republican Party, and here not everyone will agree with us, was not openly anti-democratic until the last decade. We very quickly spell out three basic principles that a party needs to follow in order to be considered committed to democracy. One, you've got to uh, accept the results of elections were to lose. Two, you have to unambiguously uh, reject and renounce violence um, under all circumstances. And three, you need to break completely with anti-democratic or extremist forces. And it's really only in the last five years that the bulk of the Republican Party uh, fails to check off any of those boxes. And what do you learn from, uh, you know, as a comparativist who spent a lot of time in Latin America, what do you learn from other countries about what happens and what causes that shift? Is it sort of determined by legal factors and rules, or is it historically contingent on individuals? I would say neither, but it's, it's primarily social. Hmm. It was actually really hard for us. So we're comparativists, and what we... we in, in writing the book, we thought that what we could contribute was placing the United States in comparative perspective and and you know, comparing it to to other cases, as you as you mentioned. And in this particular issue, the transformation of a mainstream political party, a long established political party, uh, one that has competed peacefully in elections for 150 years, into a an anti democratic force. That's actually a really rare occurrence. We could not find many examples yeah. of established mainstream political parties that transformed in this way. It um, we, we came up with a few of them. One of them was uh, the Thai, early 21st century Thai Democrats, um, which had been a, a pretty consistently anti-military, pro-democratic force in the 20th century, but supported coups in the early 21st. Another example is probably Chilean conservatives in the mid-20th century. Um, and another example, although it was not fully democratic to begin with, would be Southern Democrats in the United States in uh, right. Reconstruction era. This is a political party. Again, nobody was was fully democratic back in the, the first half of the 19th century, but a party that competed peacefully in elections and before the Civil War and then uh, radicalized and, and embraced violence and authoritarianism during the period of Reconstruction. So your longer historical arc seems to tell a story about first seeking the votes of disgruntled white supremacist voters in the South. And I was just wondering if you link the shift to a shift having to do with race and race relations in the United States, um, if if that landscape is changing in a way that you think uh, marks that turn towards anti-democratic behavior. Yes. So there are... um there are many plausible explanations for why the Republicans have radicalized. Some focus on growing inequality and economic insecurity. Others mm-hmm. focus on the role of social media. Uh, some focus on the role of Trump himself. I'm sure all of those have some role. But for me, and in the book, 
it's centrally about race. And uh, to, to develop that point, let me just go back to, to Zephyr's earlier mm-hmm. question. What we learned from these other cases, from, from Thailand, from Chile, from the Democratic Party in the late 19th century in the United States was you know, parties are most likely to play by Democratic rules when they have a uh, confidence that they're going to win again in the future. And when losing is not viewed as catastrophic, where the cost uh, of losing is not perceived to be enormously high. Parties start to abandon democracy when, one, they don't think they're going to be able to win again in the future. And two, most importantly, when they or their constituents fear that the cost of losing will be catastrophic. When you say catastrophic, do you mean just the end of the party or just um, so destructive to the interests of the people who vote for them? The latter. And what and the parallel that we see in both Thailand and in the U.S. South and Reconstruction is, uh, is a loss of status, a loss of social and racial status. So what, what happened, what very clearly happened in, in Reconstruction era, is that Black suffrage in the South meant not only the loss of the Democratic Party's electoral dominance in the South, but it meant a fierce challenge to existing racial hierarchies. It threatened black suffrage threatened to uh, to overturn existing racial hierarchies. And that for a very large number of southern whites who were the constituents of the Democratic Party posed a perceived existential threat. Um, that was a, a threat that they were not willing to 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 tolerate. Um, we see a parallel with the rise of multiracial democracy in the United States, which uh, our transition, our country's Transition to multiracial democracy begins with the civil rights revolution, begins formally in the 1960s, but is really not seriously felt, or its impact is not, it really begins to be felt in the early 21st century, in part because we're growing more diverse, but also because defenders of civil rights and defenders of racial equality are, are growing stronger. And we view the radicalization of the Republican Party in the 21st century primarily as a reaction to, um, to the rise of to the transition to multiracial democracy, many Trumpist voters feel like the country they grew up in is being taken away from them, and that is a, a again perception of existential threat. So I have a few questions about this. One is, you know, some of the particular institutional mechanisms you talk about in the U.S., in particular the Senate, which grants extraordinary disproportionate power to rural and therefore more uh, white voters and the Electoral College would seem to be protections as, as problematic as they are. And you talk about how problematic they are, but they would seem to serve as protections against that anxiety. It seems that these anti-majoritarian mechanisms would assuage the anxiety of that of the uh, soon-to-be uh, minority um, uh, white population. Yeah, and I think it did for many elites. So this debate has actually occurred within Republican circles um, yeah. because you, have, you basically have two camps, right? You have one camp that says, you know, the, the, the status quo is not so terrible, uh, particularly the status quo institutions really favor us. Let's, you know, this is sort of Mitch McConnell's worldview. There's a lot we can do with the institutional status quo. And there are others who, an increasingly loud and energetic faction, that wants to burn the whole thing down, which is de- that has developed an anti-system orientation. And um, s- some Republican elites look at these guys and say, you know, we got a really good thing going. You're, you're crazy to want to uh, to dismantle this constitution, for example. Um, but I think that the sense of threat is much more localized, much more personal. Um, it, it's it's not a matter of individuals sort of coldly calculating their chances in the Electoral College, but rather the way they feel when they see, for example, an African-American family in the White House for eight years. So there's increasing reports that poor and middle class voters of color, uh, Black and Latino, are voting increasingly for Republicans. There's a debate about how much that is happening, but there's not a debate that it is, that's the trend line. 
how does that fit in your story? Does it not fit? Um, it doesn't fit easily, frankly, except to say sort of perversely that if, if the trend continued in a dramatic way, which I think is unlikely, it would probably de-radicalize the Republican Party. If the Republican Party really does evolve into a multiracial or a multi-ethnic party, it will probably moderate because it will become better at winning national elections. So it won't have to worry about the fact that it can't win national elections, which was the case in the early 21st century. And secondly, eventually, if enough of the Republican base is non-white, the, the Christian nationalist core of the party will be diluted. Right now, the, the Christian nationalist core constituency of the Republican Party is, is the loudest voice, the most energetic, the most committed voice in the party. It's a, it's a, it's a primary winning um, faction of the party. And if the, the party were truly to diversify, that, that element would weaken. And the, I think the Republican Party uh, probably still wouldn't be a party that I vote for, but I think it would probably evolve into a, into a more pragmatic, moderate party. All of that said, thus far, we see levels of non-white voting returning to their early 21st century levels. A lot of these claims that are made about Blacks and Latinos voting more Republican, moving in the Republican direction, are based on the movement away from the Obama era. The Obama era was a peak, mm -hmm. uh, an, an absolute peak of non-white concentration in the Democratic Party. At no point ever did, uh, did non-whites vote so overwhelmingly Democrat than in the, the, the Romney and McCain elections, the McCain and Romney elections. So what we've seen so far is a migration back to George W. Bush levels, in which about 70% of non-white voters are voting Democrat. That's a huge majority. Now, a couple of caveats have to be said. First of all, people vote for a, lots of different reasons, right? People vote for all kinds of different reasons. And all voting groups in the United States, uh, but I would say especially Latin, what we call Latinos, are really diverse. They're really, really diverse, and they vote for different reasons. Some people, it's all about taxes. Some people, it's it's uh, about identity. Some people, uh, it's about Trump. Uh, for many voters, many voters are, um, particularly people who are less politically engaged and who are less likely to vote, it, people are really angry at the status quo. They're, they're, they don't have clear ideologies. They, they don't have a clear, consistent sort of voting profiles the way most of us do. Uh, they may look sort of inconsistent in their political views because they don't think about politics that much. But for reasons that we're still trying to understand, I think, but a lot of it has to do with, not only, but it has to do with the, with the pandemic, voters all over the world are really pissed off. They're really, have, uh, they're really angry at their politicians, at their governments, at the, at the status quo, and they are voting anti-incumbent. They're voting opposition. So that means a couple of things. It means that's that, and this is true of white and non-white voters. Um, and it's certainly true of many Latino voters. It, it means voting opposition, which means sort of that, that anti-incumbent mood benefited <laughs> Biden in 2020, but it benefited the Republicans in 2022 and will benefit Trump in 2024. It benefited Trump in 2016. But a populist appeal, appeal of a politician who is from outside the system and who attacks the status quo, as Trump does and Biden does not, um, that's going to attract some of those voters. I really appreciate you talking about this in the global context, because some of the book is about the absolutely bizarre and unusual features of American politics. The America as an outlier um, institutionally and the Republican Party as an outlier in its endorsement, in its rejection of the election um, and uh, refusal to condemn violence. And you, if, if tell me if I'm mischaracterizing you, but the U.S. as outlier. But there's another story that you just referred to, which is the, the global story of, you know, electoral anger 
Um, what are ways, how, how do those two interact? <laughs> well, first of all, I think we're just beginning to get a grip on the degree of this voter anger. And it's a, you know, it poses a challenge to democracies all over the world. In my region, Latin America, no incumbent party has won a democratic election since 2018. So I, I, um, I may be off by one or two, but by, I think it's 21 presidential elections in a row. The mm. incumbent party has lost. Not you That's really interesting. If you go back to 2018, Latin America, big region, nothing but incumbents losing, incumbent parties losing. Mm. That um, will probably change next year uh, in the Mexican election, but this is a long streak of incumbent defeats. It's a pretty similar story in Europe. Incumbents mm. are losing and losing and losing again. Um, and this is because voter anger is really intense. I think that in how it interacts with the U.S. story, you know, there are obviously real issues, real reasons for concern, say, in Western Europe, other established democracies, mm. the rise of whether it's the, uh, the AFD in Germany uh, or the Brotherhood of Italy and, and you know, assuming a share of power in Italy, there has there has been an emergence of a radical right in uh, the quite potent radical right across Europe, and uh, somewhere between fifteen and thirty percent of electorates across the advanced industrialized world is sort of falling into this extreme right or populist right camp. They tend to be more male than female. They tend to be less college non college educated, more rural than urban. Um, and uh, more religious than non-religious, but and the same sector is emerging everywhere. Yeah, the U.S. is 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 worse off because it's the only place in all of the uh, established rich democracies where the far right has come on its own to power and assaulted democratic institutions. So elsewhere, the it's the far right has it's twenty five percent of the vote, but it's either in opposition. Or it's a junior partner in a coalition government, and it hasn't uh, been able or willing to do much damage to democratic institutions. Or it may even be a senior partner in a coalition government, like in Italy. But again, thus far has governed. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like their policies, but they govern democratically. So only in the actually... United States has the far right come to power and begun to assault democratic institutions, and that's, I think, an institutional story. So th I was just about to say, let's uh, unpack the institutional story as to why that has happened. My sense when I read How Democracies Die was that you were telling a story about norms, uh, that the Republican Party had a shift in norms where they stopped believing and accepting the outcomes of elections. There was far less forbearance. Uh, there was more encouragement to violence. So that's a story of norms. Uh, but what I find really striking about tyranny of the minority is that you tell a story about the U.S. Constitution enabling uh, the anti-democratic shift uh, that you've been describing had, that has gotten extreme in the last few years, but has always sort of been there, part uh, an, an enabler baked within our constitutional design. And I wondered how much you think that the Constitution is to blame for the problem that you're describing. Um, the Constitution plays a role. Again, we could take any constitution and that, you know, ultimately the Republican Party's radicalization is a is a product of this country's long term transition to multiracial democracy. And that would have occurred and that reaction would have occurred under any institutional setting. So we shouldn't overstate the role of the constitution. Right. But um, we the United States is an extreme outlier in terms of our excessively counter-majoritarian institutions, which we can unpack. But only the United States, among established democracies, allows partisan minorities to systematically thwart legislative majorities and sometimes to govern over electoral majorities. Um, no other no other president's democracy has a, an electoral college that allows the loser of the popular vote to become president. No other um, democracy routinely employs something like the filibuster, which requires supermajorities to pass regular legislation. No other established democracy allows Supreme Court justices to sit on the court for life, allowing you know somebody 
appointed and confirmed two generations ago to to rule against contemporary majorities. Uh, all other established democracies have either term limits or retirement ages for for justices. So what this does does a bunch of things. First of all, it is um, it is blatantly undemocratic for minorities to be governing over majorities. But something else that we that we I think discovered along the process of researching the second book is uh, the because the Republican Party is able to win and exercise a lot of power without winning national majorities. And, you know, they're not the ones that design these institutions. They just benefit from them. But a, a, a set of institutions that pretty dramatically rewards sparsely populated territories is, is going to empower and give a huge advantage or significant advantage to a party that's based on sparsely populated territories. 21st century, that's the Republican Party. So they don't have to win national majorities to win the presidency. They don't have to win national majorities to control the Senate. They don't have to win national majorities to have a dominance in the Supreme Court. They also don't need to win state-level majorities to control some state legislatures like Wisconsin. But among other things, that has been a disincentive for the Republican Party to de-radicalize. Most political parties, when they consistently fail to win national majorities or consistently lose elections, they adapt. For Like the Democratic Party lost three presidential elections in a row in the 80s. For better or worse, it changed its leadership and its program under Clinton. Same thing with the Labor Party in the 1990s. This is what political parties do when they can't win national majorities. The Republican Party has not been able to win national majorities in the 21st century. Uh, I mean, systematically lost national majorities in the 21st century, and yet does not feel pressure to build a broader base, to, to rethink its leadership, to rethink its program, and to appeal to a broader set of Americans. They can just double down on their radicalism because they know that a, a party of 47% has a coin flip chance of the presidency and a pretty good shot at controlling the Senate. If they had to win 51, 52% of the vote, they would be under intense pressure to find another path than the, than the Trumpist one. The Republican Party, much to my disappointment, is doing pretty well against the Democratic Party in national polling. I'm not saying it's winning, but it's certainly competing. It is not acting. You know, if I hear your story, I would expect that we would see a really big divide, that you'd see a shift, especially with the, the Supreme Court blessing of extreme and open gerrymandering. You'd see a kind of shift away to say, like, let's just go for 40 percent. Let's alienate more people. But isn't another story that they're just using a different strategy and a strategy that is appealing to that anti, that global anti-incumbent sentiment? And how would I know the difference um, between uh, whether the theory that the institutions are driving this or the theory that they just have a, a kind of a, a social media-based strategy, an anti-incumbency-based strategy, frankly, a campaign finance-based strategy, which I want to talk about in, the, in a second. Don't the facts on the ground suggest that Republicans are actually nationally competing, even if they're winning without those, even if they're gaining power without those majorities? Well, they're competing with the help of institutions, right? They, they The Republicans dramatically, historically underperformed in losing the presidency and both branches of Congress in 2020. They uh, badly underperformed in 2022. You had an inc an, a relatively unpopular incumbent and the opposition always, always, always wins unless you just impeach Bill Clinton in, uh, in midterm elections. Um, so the party is really badly underperforming. Now they right. may benefit. They may benefit from the the sort of anti incumbent mood that we're talking about today. I think they they will, but um, the, I don't think there's any question that the party has been underperforming really throughout the 21st century. Now, in terms of strategy and how would we tell? It's a great question. I mean, I is is there a strategy? We, you would have to look at debate within the party. I mean, there was. You remember back to I at least I'm old enough to remember back to the to the 1980s and the the the, uh, the extraordinary amount of 
hand-wringing and debate and contestation within Democratic Party circles and intellectual circles and journalistic circles about uh, about whether the Democrats and in what way the Democrats should change course. Do we see those debates happening in the Republican Party? I mean, basically, Republicans who are not Trumpists are waiting for Donald Trump to die. And they keep us, they've assumed over a series of, of moments that this was the end for Trump. Um, and then they were wrong. I mean, what I, I don't see a strategy, a Republican strategy heading into 2024 because most Republicans didn't think that Trump would be the candidate. We'll see where we are by the time this airs, but the speakership debacle is an example of that. While reading your book, thinking about um, uh, my friend, Ken Buck, who I know from anti-monopoly work, uh, who this past week said, I'm not going to vote for any speaker unless they say, this is a Republican, unless they say that the 2020 election was legitimate. So he is using the uh, Levitsky test for, for you know, uh, the, base, the base level job is to recognize the legitimacy of elections. But, but I ask about Buck just as an example, because I'm a Democrat, I'm active in Democratic Party work. There's a, a kind of passivity to the Democratic Party in the narrative in your book. Like the Democrats sort of don't show up one way or the other. It's a story about the Republican Party. And I don't think you yeah. mean to suggest this, but one can leave saying, well... The Republicans are in charge illegitimately. They have these illegitimate counter-majoritarian institutions that they are willing to exploit to maintain power. And the Democratic Party also is then waiting for Trump to die effectively. What is your understanding of the role of the Democratic Party during these years of radicalization? So a historical story. I actually am a little more interested in that than the going forward story. But where do you see the the, the counterparty? Um. Just one one point on what you just said. I I would not actually say the Republicans hold power illegitimately. I mean, I think okay. it's deeply problematic, um, and uh, and undemocratic. Right. But those are the established rules of the game. The, the, right. Um, and even the, using the word the illegitimately was my falling into the dangerous trap of. <laughs> of um, with with the possible exception of the the Merrick Garland seat on the Supreme Court, which I, I think that was that was illegitimate. The the theft of that Supreme Court seat was was illegitimate. But I wouldn't say they hold power illegitimately. Um the Democratic Party I tend to be more sympathetic to the plight of the Democratic Party than than most. Um I could I view the Democratic Party, and I think I speak for Daniel here, one as a normal political party power-seeking political party that represents very diverse constituencies. And this is where I'm going. Um, the Republican Party, given how big and diverse the United States is, the Republican Party is an extraordinarily narrow party. I mean, it's, it's a party at this point, really, with, with very few core constituencies. Uh, it, it, it successfully defined itself as a white Christian party um, and doesn't represent a hell of a lot more than that in a country that is pretty diverse. So that means that the Democratic Party, and I exaggerate only a little in saying this, represents everyone else. Do you think that the Democratic Party sees itself as the party of multiracial democracy? That is a good question. Um, the Democratic Party is a really diverse party. And there are certainly important leaders in the Democratic Party who view it as the party of multiracial democracy. But there are others who don't. In fact, the Democrats are importing Romney and Reagan Republicans, center-right, suburban, college-educated Republicans who uh, may very well like, you know, complain at home about woke culture and, and, you know. So Democrats are a really, really diverse bunch, and which makes um, coherence almost impossible. It makes strategic change very difficult. It makes the party inevitably slow moving and pragmatic for better and worse. Um, it makes the party much less of a threat to democracy, but it, it is a slow moving, incoherent beast 
for structural reasons. When you say structural, though, you're talking about the constitutional design. I wasn't, but I could have been. I think you're right. Yeah. I, w- I was talking about the, the, the social, ba- the incredibly diverse social bases and constituents of the Democratic Party. It is a very heterogeneous party. If we look at the Electoral College or the equal representation of the states in the Senate uh, and the fact that only the Senate can confirm Supreme Court justices who stay for life, uh, I wondered if you were actually trying to suggest that a party that is either by intention or de facto the party of multiracial democracy um, just can't really uh, come into power and enact their agenda under those structural rules. And I wasn't sure if that's the, that's what you were trying to say about the institutional problem uh, or if that there are other structural issues that uh, you would focus on. Uh, look, I think you're absolutely right. An, an additional structural problem facing the Democratic Party mm-hmm. is institutional. They can't win. They can't win power with 50.1% of the vote. Right now, they need to win presidential elections by four points or so. They need to overwhelmingly win the popular vote in the Senate in order to control the Senate. So they they have to go beyond the median voter and appeal in in effect to to someone who is right of the median voter in order to win power. So in addition to this problem of being so diverse, in order to actually win power, given the rules of the game, the Democrats have to actually move even further to, to the right. You won't be surprised that I ask this, I don't think. And I and I loved your book, but there is a, for those of us who focus on money and politics, a, a gaping hole in it that the U.S. is also an outlier in the way that we fund elections. And um, my own experience and uh, witnessed to what is happening in primaries as well as general elections, is that money is playing a real substantial role in the alienation and the challenges for a democratic culture, that the disempowerment that flows from um, money and politics and the feeling that both parties are accountable to donors and not just the feeling, the you know evidence that suggests that may be true. I'm, I'm sure you talked about it. What is your thought about how money and politics interacts with this? And was there a choice not to include it? Or what was what was your thinking? Look, first of all, there are many ways to die. And there are many ways to be sick. And there are many ways for democracy to be sick. And I completely agree that the role of money in politics, one, makes the U.S. an outlier, and two, has a terrible distortionary effect on the quality of democracy. And it did well before Trump. The the reason why we don't focus on it are twofold. One, it's a style issue. I want to write books where people raise their hands and talks and say, well, what about what about this and what about that? I don't want yeah. to write a book that is a, a kitchen sink argument. Yeah. Right. Um, because a kitchen sink argument which lists, you know, all the ills or all the factors contributing to the sickness of American democracy, and there are many, is is not, in my view, to my taste, an interesting book. I wanted to make a clear and parsimonious argument. The other reason why is that we are not convinced that although money is causing damage to American democracy in a bunch of ways, it's not contributing to the crisis that we're writing about, at least not massively couple of things. The the discontent, the distrust in political parties that you rightly point to exists everywhere, even in places with public financing of of political parties. That I cannot find a democracy with a population more Mm. over three million where you don't see equal or worse levels of public discontent with our parties, our politicians, political systems. So our current campaign finance system is a disaster. It's very undemocratic, but I don't think it's the primary cause of the discontent. It's also not the primary cause of Trumpism. And that can be contested and is contested. You know, Trump was the last choice of the Koch brothers and most of the billionaires who came to dominate Republican politics in the early part of the last decade, right? The Tea Party era. The guys that they bet on 
were systematically crushed by Trump. You know, Trump, if anything, was a, a product of a reaction against rather than the product of the fusion of these billionaires into Republican politics. So I, I think it's a, a terrible, terrible problem, but I don't see it as a principal cause of the, the, the radicalization that we're seeing today in the Republican Party. So if we could shift now to talking about some of the reforms. You said earlier you didn't write kitchen sink books, uh, but your long list of proposals did <laughs> feel like the kitchen sink to me in a good way. And linking this back to the evidence that you draw on, suggesting that most Americans do support in the 21st century multiracial democracy. We haven't really defined what it means, uh, but I think that your kitchen sink proposals towards the end of the book are ways uh, that we could change both the constitutional structure and other institutions to move in the multiracial democracy direction. And I wanted to have a chance to discuss some of those proposals, as well as the barriers to implementing them. Sure. Ultimately, we make the case throughout the book that the United States is a set of institutions that thwart majority rule. We spend a little less time on this than I would have liked, but uh, I do think, and this is a really important fact, only in the 21st century have we had a majority of Americans consistently favor what, what I would define as the sort of ideological pillars of multiracial democracy. From, we have a pretty minimalist definition of multiracial democracy. It's basically democracy in which right, the state truly protects individuals of all ethnic groups equally, which is obviously, um, uh, you know, the U.S. is moving in that direction, but not there. It, there are Two basic pillars, I think, ideological pillars of multiracial democracy, a uh, an acceptance of diversity and a commitment to racial equality, support, active support for racial equality. And those things seem pretty basic um, they, and certainly seem basic to younger, younger urban Americans. But only in the 21st century have, have a majority of Americans, according to most surveys, supported those two things. There's never been a time in history, including, you know, when, 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 when we were growing, when I was growing up, there was never in a time where you could find a majority of Americans supporting those two things. Um, but now you do. Now we do have consistent majorities um, who are tolerant of diversity and supportive of racial equality. And the, the, the question is how to empower them, how to let that majority actually express itself and, and, and achieve policies. And that to me, is the great crisis we face today is we have a set of a, a political party buttressed by a set of institutions that thwart basic majority rule. And uh, we I th I'm actually confident, particularly looking at the at the at the views of younger Americans, that we will eventually get there to consolidate multiracial democracy. But if we could reform our institutions to actually enhance majority rule, we'd get there more quickly. And uh, I think with less conflict. Could you highlight the most important, at least immediate institutional reforms? And of course, we've also, I mean, one of the problems that you identify is that it's so hard to amend the Constitution and some of the institutions you're describing, we probably can't change without a constitutional amendment. Uh, so whether it's changing the amendment rule or other reforms that we could pursue under current conditions, are there particular ones that you would uh, encourage people to focus on? Yeah, I mean, um, as you know very well, and I've noted, Julie, the U.S. among democracies has the hardest constitution on earth to reform. And so we would advocate and do advocate for making it. Now, it should be hard to change the constitution. It, the, yeah. it, it, it should not be possible for a single political party to unilaterally change the rules of the game in democracy. That is, That was a problem in Hungary. That's a problem in Israel today. Um, it's been a problem elsewhere. So it should be hard to change the Constitution, but not this hard. So we would advocate for making it easier to reform the Constitution. That said, and kind of leaving that aside, first of all, there are a whole slew of non-constitutional reforms related to voting rights and voting access that can easily, not easily, but that, <laughs> that should be pursued. Um, there are very, very few democracies in the world uh, where governments make it hard for people to get access to the ballot box, right? In a democracy, the government should make it easy for people to vote. And in the vast majority of democracies, that's exactly what happens. 
And every, you know, everything from voting being on a Sunday or a holiday to automatic registration to vote, I personally would make it yeah. mandatory, obligatory to vote, as is the case in many democracies. But there, there, there's a series of steps that we could take to pretty much ensure that 75, 80% of the electorate voted in elections as opposed to 55 or 60%. And that, that's one basket of reforms. Um, I, this is a little more controversial with Democrats, but eliminating the filibuster, or at least weakening the filibuster, I, I, I would yes. say eliminating the filibuster is a, an easy step. I think it's going to happen anyway. The Republicans might do it, in fact, before the Democrats do. But as an issue of democracy, legislative majorities for regular legislation should prevail over legislative minorities. And I think, and this here we draw on your latest book, Julie, a, a small reform like that can have a momentum-generating impact. Uh, first of all, if the if the if the filibuster eliminated, it'd be a lot easier to pass the kind of voting rights legislation that that failed yes. a couple of years ago. And I think it, it would have a very very healthy consequence of showing Americans, particularly younger ones, that reform is possible. That you know, reform breeds more reform. There's, there's a, there's a, as you've shown, there's evidence of that. And so one low-hanging fruit is the filibuster that would facilitate the passage of other legislation, maybe gun control legislation, maybe climate legislation, maybe abortion legislation, maybe voting rights legislation that's popular with large majorities of Americans and that would encourage them to sort of get back in the game and not, not give up. Uh, another obvious, more difficult, but obvious reform is uh, is the elimination of the Electoral College. The United States is the only mm -hmm. presidential democracy on earth where the, the loser of the popular vote can win the presidency. You know, there is a decent chance, as we were talking about, that Donald Trump again wins the presidency via the Electoral College, which would be the third time in the 21st century. It's really hard to imagine how voters much younger than me who grew who came of age in the 21st century could look at a democracy where the loser wins the presidency three times out of six elections and say i live under a democracy yeah i was the first year in law school when bush v gore was decided and i was sure and many of my professors then were sure that we would have reform of the electoral college and uh, other uh aspects of the Constitution at that moment. But uh, but it's really interesting, uh, just to, to wrap up, that you write towards the end of the book, the most powerful weapon against change is silence, uh, and discuss the culture of veneration that we have, not only for the Constitution, but for the institutions as well, that you describe as anti-democratic in the book. So I thought maybe we could end by talking a little bit about how to overcome that. The most powerful weapon against change is silence. So moving forward towards democracy, what would you say to the young people that you're putting your hopes in? One thing is that it hasn't always been this way. I think all of us, even people of, of uh, anybody who's grown up in the last 50 years has this sort of taken for granted assumption that, that all these rules are fixed. Um, and I, I have to admit, I don't have a great explanation. There, there have been books written on this, but I don't have a great explanation for why that's occurred. Um, I think that the originalism movement uh, had something to do with it. I think that possibly the, 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 the resurgence of, of evangelical Christianity had something to do with it. Steve, you and I were probably in college around the same time. History, we were told, ended. That there was a kind of satisfaction, too, a self-satisfaction. Yeah, excellent point. We need to remind ourselves and maybe remind younger people is it wasn't always this way. That we have in the United States, or we can rescue a long history in the United States of from above and from below of working to make our system more democratic. So George Washington himself wrote a letter to his nephew the year the Constitution was written, describing that the new Constitution is imperfect and stating that it would be up to future generations to, to, to perfect it, beginning with the Bill of Rights, all the way through to Reconstruction, through suffrage expansion. Throughout our history, we've been working to make our system more 
democratic. And then we stopped. We just stopped in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to remind ourselves that it's the current period that's radical. I mean, freezing the Constitution and refusing to think about reforming it is unusual. It's radical. And frankly, it's nuts. And we need to go back to an earlier tradition throughout all other generations spent time discussing, debating, thinking about how to make the system better. What I love about your book and this conversation is, you know, your when democracies die, the tyranny of the minority. These sound like bleak titles, but um, it's the opposite. It's actually a story. It's an extraordinary story about the majority of Americans supporting a multiracial democracy. The proposals you suggest are absolutely invigorating and exciting. <laughs> and, and so I, I think we should rename this, you know, the, the birth of American democracy, not, not, not its death. <laughs> we, had, we had a long wow. series of debates with our <laughs> agent in particular, our, our editors about the titles. Yeah. I, uh, um, and scary titles sell. It sounds like you're talking about the revival of American <laughs> democracy after uh, some dormancy. For a while, I wanted to, um, to, to this is going to get me in trouble, but uh, to, <laughs> to use the title of the third founding, uh, which yeah. is to take off of yeah. Boner's second founding, yeah. uh, which is, which is the, 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 the positive take on all of this, right? We are yeah. actually moving towards multiracial democracy. The thing is that we... Um, Tested that out on friends and people thought it sounded like a sci-fi novel. (laughs) Well, I hope, I hope your proposals are not a sci-fi novel. Uh, I hope they become real in my lifetime or at least the lifetime of my children. Thank you so much, Steve Levitsky, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank Fordham Law School, especially Dean Matthew Diller and Associate Deans Joe Landau and Young Jay Lee for supporting this podcast. We're super grateful to our amazing producers, Melody Rowell and Bill Pollock at Yellow Armadillo Studios for going above and beyond to make this podcast come together every time. The music for Democracy's Future is Climbing by Chad Crouch, also known as Podington Bear. Special thanks to Rob Yasharian at Fordham Law School for designing our new logo. And please subscribe to Democracy's Future wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much and see you next time.